John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. It is from this troubling passage that we take our text today as we continue in our study of the theology of food and eating. I'm grateful to John for speaking the last two Sundays um, and for his encouraging words from 1 John chapter 3. You might wonder why I call this a troubling passage. It's because of what follows verse number 35. If you look at verse number 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then in verse 53, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him or no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains or abides in me and I in him. Near the end of this passage, we have the consequence of the result of Jesus speaking these words in verse number 66. From, that, uh, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In our study on the theology of food and eating, we've looked at various pieces of the mosaic. And putting them together, I think, will help us in seeing food and eating in light of Scripture, God's revelation of truth. And it's been several weeks since we've met, and so I thought I would review what we've looked at thus far. Uh, I beg your patience as we go over it, and then we will come to what I believe is the center piece, the crucial piece of this mosaic. We began with the idea of theology, that theology is important because it informs our behavior, or at least it should. And it is theology that tells us that what most people refer to as nature, as God's people, we refer to as creation. God created this world. The second piece of the mosaic is, in fact, creation. That when theologically we speak of creation, we must understand that God created the world and he is the one who sustains it. And he is the purpose for which it was created. The world is not some random accident. It does not have value waiting for us to assign value to it. It is, in fact, creation is the concrete expression of God's love. In this light, theologically understood, food cannot be reduced to simply fuel or material stuff to keep our bodies going. It is the provision and nurture of God. More than that, it is the provision of God made pleasing and delectable. The third thing we saw was Trinity. That creation, as narrated in the scriptural form, is bound up in the life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity do not exist in isolation from one another. We don't have the Father over here and the Son over here and the Spirit over there. What we find is that there is a mutual indwelling in each member of the Trinity. I think it goes beyond our ability to fully comprehend. But it explains creation that God created the world not as I'm over here and you're over there and then there's food over there. 
But there is, in fact, to be this mutual interdependence in God's creation because creation reflects who God is. It is revelation of who he is. True life is lived through the gifts of others. And our experience of eating confirms this truth. Then we spent a bit of time on bread. As we saw that oftentimes in scripture, we are told that God provides certain things for the beasts, for the animals, for the birds, for the fish. But for us, wine, oil and bread. These do not spring from creation in these forms. It requires effort on our part. So in order to get bread, one must first plant grain. One must cultivate it and then harvest it, harvest it and then store it. And then when one is ready to make bread, one must transform the grain into flour, the flour into dough, put the dough in the oven at the right temperature for the right amount of time. And the result is we get something worth eating. Thus, when we in the Lord's Prayer say, give us this day our daily bread, unlike the birds of the air or the beasts of the field, there is not this expectation that God simply gives something to us, but that we, in fact, are involved in the process. There is a story involved. God, in fact, allows the grain to grow. He enables us to bake it. But we, in fact, are involved in this process. Then we looked at place. Place is a condition that is required for anything to be at all. It is both a limit and a condition for the possibility of life. If you have no place, then you cannot be alive. Next, we looked at embodiment, which is very much tied to place. Okay, I'm in this place because I have a body and this body is in this particular place. And through my senses, I get a sense, if you wish, of place. The food, the smell, sounds, touch, images... And that's why, though in the globalized world we lose sight of it, when you are in a particular place, there are particular foods that are available there. There are particular smells that are available there that are not found elsewhere. We looked at this when we were going through it, that living in a postmodern world, there are now places that are called non-places. Places that have no history. They have, seemingly they are just a place where we are passing through. And we lose this sense of place and embodiment. And the third thing we lose is a sense of dwelling. That is, this is a place I'm going to stay. To dwell means to make a place or make a home for oneself. It is a response or an expression of our responsiveness to other people. That this is where I am, but I'm not here alone. There is a sense in which I live here so that I may share with others. However, this sounds so strange because we live in a world in which we find a steady, even systematic destruction of the systems that nurture us and that feed us. And so this notion of dwelling in a mobile society sounds almost bizarre at times. We looked at the matter of Sabbath and asked the question, what if, what if, the climax, the apex of the week of creation is not when man was created on day six, but in fact is day seven, the day of Sabbath. We think of Sabbath as a rest or as a break, a time to escape from the harried pace of life. 
this is not the case we find in Genesis 2. God rests not because he's tired, but because there is no other place he would rather be. God rests because the place where God is is the place of God's love and concern and work. There's simply no other place worth going to. And so Sabbath is not a reprieve from life, but it is, in a sense, putting an end to our restlessness and our wandering a restlessness that prevents us from, in fact, engaging the world around us. If we understand Sabbath correctly, it teaches us to savor the places that we are in. Then we talked about gardens. When God created man, he put him in a garden. It's no accident that God did so. It is in the garden where Adam and Eve, people, first taste and fully sense the grace of God. Here they discover what it means to be human, to be hungry, because to be hungry is not a sin. There they see blessing. They also see that they are ignorant. There are things they do not know, things that they are learning, things that they do not need to learn. And there is an interdependence. But it is in the garden that they learn, and we should as well, that we live in a world in which we are recipients of God's gifts. In line with that, we talked about God as the gardener. Throughout scripture, God is portrayed as the ultimate gardener. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. If you think about it, in contrast to chapter 1, in which God spoke and said, let there be, and these things happen, we have the creation of man where God forms him from the ground, and then we have God planting a garden. Not speaking, and a garden came into being, but God planted a garden. How do we view God's act of creating? Do we imagine that God creates something and then he lets it go? This is certainly not a biblical notion. God attends to the world by tending it like a gardener. He holds the soil and he breathes life into it. In the case of Adam, man became a living soul. In the case of Eden, it became a garden. He planted a garden. As I mentioned, when Jesus was raised from the dead, we find him in a garden. Then we looked at the matter of exile. To be exiled doesn't mean that you are in the wrong place, you know, a question of location and logistics. To be in exile also means that the ways and manners of our being somewhere do not demonstrate a good fit. We're out of sorts. We might, in fact, be in the right place, amazingly enough, and still be in exile. This is the case with Israel when Jesus comes into the world. They're back in Palestine from Babylon, but they still have the sense that they are in exile. When we are in exile means that we are unable to live peaceably, sustainably, and joyfully in our place. In a sense, not knowing who we are or where we should be. Not knowing who we should be with. Because we're in exile, we don't always know how we should live. We don't know how to live in ways that nurture and flourish others and create delight. For our purposes in this series, 
We don't know how through our eating to live sympathetically into the memberships that creation that makes creation a life-giving home. To live in exile is to find oneself in a world that is increasingly inhospitable and unlivable. And this is seen both in the production of food and in the consumption of food. Then we looked at death. We know that we need to eat. If we don't eat, we will die. We eat to live. But for us to eat, to live, something else must die. Without the deaths of others, we will have no food. Whether this means animals or plants or anything else, those things must die in order that we can live. But to understand death, and again, this is one of those things where like, well, I, I know what death is. We need to look at it from a Trinitarian perspective. That not all death is bad or all death is wrong. We see this in the self-giving life of Christ in which he gives his life, he dies, that we might have life. Biologically speaking, death is the end of one's biochemical functions, if you wish. But theologically, death can be a self-offering moment in which one gives oneself so that others may live. This theological view of death presupposes a fundamentally different understanding of life. See, we tend to think of life as our possession. It's my life. Do not take my life. We even speak of murder as someone took another person's life, as though that were a possession. Life is a gift. It is a gift that is to be received again and again and again. And it is a gift that we in turn are to give again and again. For life to be full, it must be given away. To live well means we must learn to receive gratefully the gifts of others. We must learn to die well by turning our living gift, our living into a gift for other people. And why is this? Because the most fitting acknowledgement that we have been given something is in turn to give to others. We see this in Jesus Christ. This led us to look at the matter of sacrifice. Sacrifice, we saw, is a form of communication that involves a double offering. That I give my offering, but I give something else. I give myself. We see this in, in uh, Genesis 4, right after Adam and Eve sinned, when the, their two sons come to give a sacrifice. But only one is accepted because one gives not only his animals, he gives himself. Cain, on the other hand, is glad enough to give his sacrifice, but is unwilling to give himself. And because he holds on to his life, he then takes the life of his brother Abel. In offering a lamb, Abel and those in the Old Testament show that they live their lives according to the ways of the Good Shepherd. In offering fruits and vegetables, which sadly Cain did not do correctly, one shows his or her willingness to become a gardener like God who exercises care and provision in the garden of creation. 
But why is sacrifice, why is the offering, the offering of a living being of such importance when we talk about communion, or communication? Well, we need to go back a bit. For people to live, they must eat, which means they must consume the lives of others. This is both a humbling and a terrifying thought. In fact, I would dare say that there are people who have become vegetarian, if not vegan, because of the terror of the notion that we are eating the life of another. But it's also terrifying because it makes us realize that we cannot live on our own or by ourselves. We cannot survive on our own. We must eat in order to live. We depend on the lives of others for our life to continue. Food, therefore, is a gift and it is a means of life. To offer food to another, to offer hospitality, is to acknowledge that life is not to be taken for granted. Neither is it to be hoarded as my possession. This is my food. I will not share it with you. We may work for our food. We may, in fact, grow our own food. But we are not the sources of our food. It is God who has made this possible. As a gift, food should be something that we must learn to receive as a gift and to share with others. We must always be aware that it is something that has been given to us. Then we moved on to feasting and fasting, sort of practical application. Feasting and fasting are two complementary and mutually correcting rhythms of a self-offering life. If I am to give my life, then there are two sides of this, the feasting and the fasting. If sacrifice is about healing the alienation and violence that destroys our membership, that is belonging to others, if we reestablish that communion, it leads to abundant life. So, feasting should be understood as a celebration for the good of others, that we share something with them. We share a common life, and therefore we have a feast. We share food together. Fasting is understand, under, to be understood as restraining my own personal desires that other, otherwise would have me consume everything in sight. People should feast so they do not forget the grace and blessing of the world. We should fast so that we do not degrade or hoard the good gifts of God. Simply put, we feast to glorify God. We fast so that we do not glorify ourselves. And if we do this, then we assume a sacrificial sensibility. We come to see the giving and the receiving of food as a gift. Let's move on. I begin by quoting Norman Wiersbe, whose book on uh, the theology of food has been so helpful. It is possible to be alive and not know what real life is. We can forget or deny that life is a membership and thereby wreak havoc upon the very relationships we need to live well. We can refuse to offer ourselves to others, mostly take and rarely give, and so contribute through our eating to the dissolution of creation's health. 
It is in scripture that we find Jesus Christ presented as the archetype. He is the model for what real life looks like. We believe him to be the focal point in terms of which all life is to be understood, interpreted, and evaluated. Consider what we read in the Gospel of John when we read of Jesus as the eternal and divine who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus understands life because he is the one through whom all things came to be. He is the center through whom all creation circulates. And therefore, in our study of the theology of food, he is the crucial piece in this mosaic that we are constructing. As John writes in John 1.4, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. This is not mere existence. This is life in its fullness and truth, eternal life, even resurrection life. We hear Jesus telling Martha this in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And he told his disciples that last night before his crucifixion, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is through Jesus that we come to understand life in a different way, in a new way, a new path, a new trajectory that leads us more deeply into communion with God and with one another. Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. It is in Jesus that we cease to be what we once were and we become new creations. Consider, by the way, what we find in the Gospel of John, which begins much like the book of Genesis in the beginning. But the book of Genesis talks about creation, God creating the world. John speaks of the creator, the word, the logos. And he tells us in the opening verses that the word was in the beginning The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And as we've seen, after his death, Jesus is laid in a tomb, in a garden. And after his resurrection, Jesus is mistaken for the gardener. As one writer puts it, it's the perfect mistake to make because God is the gardener. He created the Garden of Eden and it is in Eden that Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out. And it is now in the garden that resurrection takes place and communion with God is now possible. And then when Jesus first appeared to his disciples in John chapter 20, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Does it remind you of anything? The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So it is in Jesus that a new creation has taken place. We are new creations because of him. Because his life, his life is the light of men. His life is the full truth of living. He is the standard by which our lives are to be measured. You see, 
I don't think that we think this, but somewhere, sometimes in the back of our mind, we don't imagine Jesus to be fully human. And there are heresies that have come and gone, the Gnostics in particular, who, who believe that, that Jesus was more of a phantom. He was more of a spirit who sort of came down. And there are those who believe that Jesus was a regular guy and then the, the Christ spirit came on him and then abandoned him on the cross. The fact is, Jesus was fully human and he came here and he demonstrated what it means to be human and how it is that we are supposed to live. Jesus is the eternally existent one. He is God, who from the very beginning he has been at work with his creation, seeking to make it whole again, to restore the memberships, the relationships that had been destroyed by sin. The world as we know it has become destroyed and degraded. In the words of Bob Dylan, everything is broken. We believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. But what does this mean? What does it mean that he is the Savior of the world? There is, as Jesus is our Savior, the hope that all creatures will become what they are supposed to be. That their lives will overlap and they will participate in the divine nature, as Peter writes of it in Second Peter. There is hope that memberships will be healed and that creatures will experience life more fully the way it was intended to be experienced. And the gift of the Spirit will produce His fruit in their lives. Currently, we as creatures are living a deficient form of life. What is needed is healing and strengthening of our relationships. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1 of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. In him all things hold together. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now he has reconciled you by Christ physical body through death. If we take this to mean salvation in a narrow sense, that is, when we die or when Jesus comes back, we get to go to heaven and spend eternity in heaven instead of hell, then I think we have missed the richness of who Jesus is. Jesus came here and dwelt among us. As John puts it, he pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And what he showed us is the transformation of life. And he repaired creation's many memberships. Where life is broken and degraded or hungry, Jesus repairs life, showing it as reconciled, protected, and fed. The ministry of Jesus while he was here on earth demonstrated that the path to a full life, to an abundant life, is a practical journey that begins with eating. The Gospels talk quite a bit about Jesus and food. Have we noticed that or have we missed it? Either his eating with others or his miraculous providing for those who needed to eat, as we see in John chapter 6. It is in eating together, what has been called table fellowship, that we can powerfully know and extend and share in other people's lives. Jesus ate with strangers and outcasts. And he was 
he was roundly criticized for this. In fact, there is one scholar, Norman Perrin, who has argued that Jesus was crucified because of the people he ate with. Because he broke all the social conventions. He ate with those he was not supposed to eat with. But he rejected the social system of rejecting certain people. He welcomed everyone to the table to eat with him, to have communion with him. The goal of life should be to have relationships with each other. And that in these relationships we would experience the Trinitarian love of God. The love of God that creates and sustains and fulfills creation. In Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, whose birth we will celebrate in about three weeks or so, we see that God entered into mortal flesh. Needy flesh. Interdependent flesh. Do you imagine that when Jesus was here, he never needed to eat? That he could just sort of miraculously go on his own? We know that's not the case because of the first temptation of Satan was in fact to turn stones into bread. Jesus came in the flesh. Needy, interdependent, mortal flesh. But he did this so that we might participate in God's perfect and communal life. In public worship, we have communion, the Lord's Supper, also called the Eucharist. It is central because it is here that we are fed by him to live the life he makes possible. In this meal, when we have communion, we may not be aware of it, it may become sort of a routine, a ritual, but in the Eucharist, we receive the nurture and training that we need to become people who participate in his healing and reconciling ways with the world. This is why Paul was so concerned about communion in 1 Corinthians 11. Are you familiar with 1 Corinthians 11? We read a small portion of it, but before it and afterward, Paul has some rather strong things to say. They have, in fact, distorted this amazing thing that God has given through Jesus. What was found was division rather than membership. Communion is, in fact, to show that we belong to each other. And instead, they were eating it separately and saying, basically, we don't belong to one another. Membership is something that Paul will write about in the next chapter, in chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. We all belong to each other. Have you ever wondered, if you've read 1 Corinthians 11, um, why it's such a big deal? Let me read to you what Paul writes. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. In our Bible study, Coburn, we went over the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it was brought up that their, their deaths seem a bit extreme. Why would God kill somebody for lying? Because we all freely admitted that if that were the case, none of us would be alive. Here, Paul says that because they have done communion incorrectly, eating and drinking incorrectly, that some of them are physically sick and some of them have died. 
God has killed some of the Corinthian believers because how they've been doing communion, the Eucharist. That must mean it's fairly serious business, doesn't it? By the way, I don't know if you caught it, but he says that if we eat and drink without recognizing the body of the Lord, what is the body of the Lord? The body of Christ, the church. We have entered into membership. We belong to Christ. We belong to each other. And when we eat and drink together, we should be training ourselves to recognize, oh, I'm not alone. It's not just me. I'm not a Christian by myself. I have brothers and sisters. I'm part of something larger than myself. A failure to recognize the Lord's body is in fact a failure to recognize the importance, the significance, the membership and its duties of the church. See, living when and where we do, church membership or being part of a congregation is seen as individualistic. It is seen as voluntary and occasional participation if, if necessary. This is not a biblical view. As I said, in the next chapter, Paul will write about membership. And each, if each one of us is joined to one another as a limb is joined to the torso, then that hardly seems to be voluntary or occasional. This is life. And to be separate from one another is, as Wiersma puts it, a dismembering of membership. When we, in fact, are called to remember Jesus, the Corinthians are dismembering their congregation. Joined together, we share a common life. We are members of the body of Christ who demonstrated and who made apparent what life really ought to be. It is striking to me, I'm going through Acts with the Coburn group, that in the early church we read about them quite often eating together. I think in the modern world we've tried to mimic that by having potlucks. We don't, but various groups do potlucks every Sunday. Um, and part of that is because we don't live near each other, and so whatever chance we have to eat together is, is a wonderful thing. But in the early church, they seem to be eating quite a bit. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That sounds good. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. There's a temptation to see this breaking of bread as referring to communion. But in fact, when you look at the rest of Scripture, particularly in the Gospels, the breaking of bread speaks of eating together. Um, when Jesus fed thousands in Matthew 14, he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. He broke bread. Then he gave to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And then in Luke 24, the story of the road to Emmaus. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. In their eating together, the early church sought to bear witness to Jesus' way of living among us, of his dwelling on the earth. This means daily common eating. The church eating together, which was inspired and informed by Jesus' continuing presence with them. For them... To remember Jesus wasn't simply to recall, oh, oh yeah, he used to be here. 
It was to call on Jesus and to invite him to transform what they were doing together. In other words, eating was the occasion in which the followers of Jesus could bear witness to his ongoing presence by the Spirit in the world. And now at last we come to our text. In this remarkable yet difficult passage, Jesus speaks of himself as the bread of life in verse 35, which is given for the life of the world, verse 51. The context is fairly straightforward, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. In the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus has miraculously fed 5,000 people. We read in verse number 9, Here is a boy with five, five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And yet Jesus is able to miraculously feed the great crowd that was following him. Because he was able to do this, they wanted to make him king and they wanted him to do it again and again and again. In many ways, they saw this as something like what had happened in the wilderness with Moses, the providing of manna and of quail. And if Jesus could do what Moses had done in the Old Testament, well then, we want this guy to be our king. What Jesus wanted them to see, however, is that he was not simply the provider of food. We need to learn this as well. He's not simply the provider of bread for them. He is the full meaning of food, in this case, of bread. The bread that Jesus is is not simply manna, like they had in the wilderness, which can temporarily satisfy your physical hunger. He is food for the healing, the transformation, and the fulfillment of life. It's not simply it's mere continuation. We eat so that we can live. If physical bread enables a physical life, the bread of life inspires and empowers communion life. The last part of Jesus' sayings regarding himself are difficult and have led critics to accuse the early church of being cannibals. If you look at verses 53 through 56, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains or abides in me and I in him. This does not point to cannibalism. The key word in this passage in the NIV is remains. In others, it is the word abides. By the way, I asked Zib if I could look at her Bible before church, the ESV. I'd forgotten to do so. Because in verse uh, number 53... Um, the word that is used is not simply to feed upon, which is sort of a, that sort of makes it more palatable on some level. The word is actually chew. If you do not chew on my flesh, that just sounds horrible, doesn't it? But the eating of Jesus that he speaks of alters the relationships that make up our lives. It gives them a self-offering character. That if we feed on Jesus as he gave his life, we will find ourselves following his example and giving our lives. The call to eat the bread of life introduces the listener to a kind of eating in which abiding is possible and transformative. If you think a minute, 
When we eat food, we destroy the identity of what we eat while we retain our own form, generally speaking. We absorb another's form into us, but it ceases to retain its shape or its identity. It simply becomes, you know, it's digested in our system and absorbed into our body. As one writer put it, what is distinct and whole gets broken down and homogenized in order to preserve the distinctiveness and wholeness of the feeder. I, relatively speaking, stay the same, but what I eat has to be transformed and my body absorbs it. What's the point? The point is we do not abide with food or food does not abide with us because in eating it, we destroy it. It must die in order for us to eat and to absorb it into ourselves. But when it comes to the bread of life, when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, to eat is not to absorb, but is to be transformed by it. When we absorb something, it signals the end of a relationship. I no longer have a relationship with that sandwich. Uh, It's gone. I've absorbed it into my system. But when I eat the bread of life, he abides with me and I am to be transformed by his presence. This is what communion should tell us if we are listening. It should be training us and preparing us to do as Jesus did, to give our lives to others as he gave his life for us. We are invited to extend his ministries of attention and welcome, feeding and forgiving, healing and reconciliation. These ministries require that we remember other people, that we don't simply think about ourselves, that we keep them in our hearts and our minds. So one of the reasons we have this time for prayer, that we might remember other people. Remembering Jesus, in other words, inspires us to remember others. Wiersma puts it this way. When people eat as those trained at the Eucharistic table, that is at communion, no life is simply fuel to be absorbed. All life becomes a sign and sacrament of God's love, a witness to the costliness and mystery of life and death, and so becomes the inspiration to greater attention and care. It is in remembering who Jesus is And in communion that we realize he gave his life, that we might have life, that we might give our lives to others. There's so much more we could say about this, and I've gone on far too long. The Lord willing, we'll come back to this next Sunday. I just say this in closing. We live in a society marked by consumerism, as this time of the year loudly attests. I don't know if you've noticed it, but suddenly Black Saturday or Black Friday, Cyber Monday have become more important than Thanksgiving and perhaps even Christmas itself. As a result, our approach, even as God's people, to food and eating tends to be very consumerist-driven. If we're not careful, we think in terms of comfort, convenience, and control. Stop and think a minute. Living in a world driven by consumerism, it isn't so much attachment to things as much as it is detachment from things. Shopping isn't so much about having something 
as much as it is about having the option to purchase something new to replace what you had before. What has emerged in our society is a very individualistic view of the person. In communion, we find the exact reverse. In the Lord's Supper, we are led to a different way of relating to each other and to the world. Here, we hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life, given for the life of the world. And we come to recognize in some small way that he gave his life. We don't absorb it. He abides with us that we in turn may turn around and give our lives to others. Let's pray together. Father, some of the things we've heard today are difficult. Our way of thinking about life is is so different than what we find in Jesus. We seem to be focused on death and life after death. We have no sense of who we are now, that you've called us now to be the presence of your Son in the world, to have a different view of life, of food and of eating, to see life as a gift and not a possession, as something that is to be given away. Much has been said, and I pray that by your Spirit, those things that are important would be retained. We would think about them. We would meditate on them and remember them. By your grace, in small, incremental ways, begin to put them into practice in our lives. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who gave his life, that we might have life that we can share with others. I thank you for this day that we could gather, that we could sing together, hear your word read and preached, We could speak publicly of joys and sorrows, of needs and more. We thank you for this first day of a new week. May you guide us as we walk through the world in the coming days. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.